morning again, church. I gave you two runs at it last time. It's all right. Get some coffee. It'll come back to you. Hey, we're going to be in a in Psalm 46, but before you open your Bibles, let's talk for a second. Um, I have uh, been sitting around all weekend, kind of in my mind, responding to, thinking about the events in our country, and uh, really burdened. Uh, I was talking to Shannon in the back. He's one of our resident pastors, and uh, burdened for a couple reasons. One is the obvious hurt and pain and sin in the world. The other thing is, what do, what do I say? Um, I have lots of opinions, but none of my opinions matter. And uh, I think what we need at a time like this is to be reminded of and ask God of what he does in situations like this. So it's interesting to me that in a time where we are going through a kind of a series of studies in, in the book of Psalms, um, that we have already learned that there are appropriate times of crying out to God, our confusion, mourning out loud, telling him how we feel because we don't know what we don't know. And clearly, uh, there are, if there's a time to, f- to feel out loud towards God, it would be now. I, uh, the events in Louisiana and Minnesota and Dallas, and I heard this morning in Houston, um, God hates sin. Hates it everywhere. Hates it in all of us. Um, the sin of racism, the, the sin of hatred, violence, murder, injustice, whatever it is, wherever it is, that isn't like God, it's against God. And uh, so here's what I know to do. I only know to pray and ask you to pray with me. In a time where the church really should mourn the sin in the world and the hurt and the pain, there are families who've lost loved ones and there are, there are people who are, are just really furiously angry without any compass. You know what I mean by that? They are angry at all the things they see without a Jesus to sort it out. There is no more lost position in the world without the gospel. So we're the church. We gather because we believe the good news that Jesus saves sinners and we are the foremost of all, right? So in in light of our greatest need and our greatest discovery who is Jesus, I want us to bow our heads together. And I want us to pray into the mourning, into the sin, into the stuff in our world and ask God to do something. So would you join me in prayer? God, we ask that you hear our prayer this morning. That you listen to the pleas for mercy. God, we want to confess out loud, we mourn the killings of Alton and Philando and police officers Brent and Patrick and Michael and Michael and Lauren. I uh, can't imagine what those families feel or, or the ripple effect of, of those deaths. And because you hate killing, we ask that you incline our hearts to you in a time that looks so broken. We pray for and mourn all of the broken structures and, and the broken things in our world that create injustice or things that look and seem unfair. We mourn the, the broken communities where hatred reigns. We mourn the fact that hate has divided and it's everywhere in our world. It's in the Middle East, it's in Europe, It's in America, it's in our backyard. So God, from Minnesota to Louisiana to 
Dallas to Houston and all to the ends of the world, we're asking that you do something, that you would rise up and that you would shatter the power of sin in those places. We ask, um, God, based on our faith in Christ, as we wait for our Lord to return, God, give us the hope that the gospel says in volumes is ours in Jesus, I pray. Pray this in uh, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in Psalm 46. If you turn with me there. If you've been with us a couple weeks, uh, Tyler Johnson, who's the lead pastor of Redemption Church, taught Psalms 13, and as he was setting up Psalm 13, he made a couple statements. One was that, that Psalms gives us, uh, helps us live in the sorrows and the hardness of life. I suppose if there was ever going to be a strategic moment for God to have us in some place to express the sorrows and the hardness of life, maybe 2016 in July would be a good time to do that. John Calvin said that it's the textbook of the human soul. And I suppose what he meant by that was if the human soul just cried what it thinks, well, you find it in, in the Psalms. There are moments of lament. There's moments of, of, of mourning. There are moments of confusions and questioning God and where are you, God, and why aren't you here, God, and God, you're the greatest, and all of the in-between. Every, everything the psalmist feels he expresses here. And if we ever needed a reminder in, in the reality and the truth of what we're going to read in Psalm 46, I think it's today. Because Psalm 46 is probably one of the most famous, popular, familiar psalms that you know. The Lord is our refuge and strength. That's how the psalm starts out. And I suppose if we ever needed that reminder, we need it today, that he is our refuge and strength. Sometimes, church, isn't it true? Sometimes our life is out of control. Isn't it true that sometimes the world is out of control? Doesn't it feel sometimes like there, we are left with helplessness and hopelessness? We look around. I mean, to be honest, there were little fleeting moments in my mind that who's going to fix this? What's going to make it stop? Every time a politician stands up to speak, I feel the same way. Every time someone offers an answer, I feel the same way. Every time anybody responds instinctively to any sin they have felt, I feel the same way. Who's going to stop this? Like, God, aren't you going to just show up and just crush the whole mess of us? Because we can't get it right. We can't love like you love. We can't care like you care. We can't be like you want us to be. It is just upside down. And in moments like that, in weeks like we've had this week, I suppose... We need to hear what the sons of Korah in Psalm 46 tell us. Church, that the Lord is sovereign. He is in control. He has not lost one ounce of control in this world. That he is truly all-powerful. He can do something about it. And what's even better, he will do something about it. That's what the sons of Korah tell us in Psalm 46. So if you ever needed it, if you need a booster shot of faith, because where we're going to end the day is peace, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, then lean in. Lean into this short little description. It's really clear. You could teach this passage because the psalmist isn't trying to get deep. He's saying something about God and then there's a therefore, okay? God is this, so you feel this way. You think this way and you believe this way. That's all he does in this text for us. So I'm not gonna kind of dig into words. I'm gonna just tell you the big idea. So let me do this. Before I tell you really the simplicity of Psalm 46, let me give you the background of Psalm 46. And I think it adds color, if not depth to this, this song that the sons of Korah wrote. 
Do you see at the very beginning of the text, you have a title. Most Bibles would have titles over this psalm. And it says in the title, to the choir master of the sons of Korah. Do you see that? Let me, let me tell you the story of the sons of Korah. Um, the story takes place in the time of Moses. If you're familiar with Old Testament stories and narratives, let me, let me uh, remind you of something. If you're not, then I'll give you the brief snapshot. The people of Israel, God's people, were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years until God said, time's up. He delivered them miraculously from the hands of Pharaoh, and off they go into this desert to a place that God said was flowing with milk and honey. And he, he said, it's your home. It's going to be your future. You go there because I've prepared it for you. And so off they go to wander this nomadic tribe looking for a place they've never seen. So that's the scenario. In about the second year of this wandering wilderness journey, the Lord starts to deliver Moses instructions for how the people are to worship and what they're supposed to do. So in, in chapter, chapter 3, he informs Moses about Aaron and Aaron's family going to be the priests that represent the people of God in the temple, in the tabernacle, okay? So they're going to be the pastors of the people, the, the priests that represent you and do the sacrifices for you. That's Aaron's job. Now, there's another group of people I want to use, and it's Levi and his clan. Now, Levi, uh, his job was simply to serve Aaron. So Aaron is the, the high priest. He's supposed to be taking care of all those duties of worship. But Levi is supposed to come in and help Aaron do the job in a very pragmatic way. And Levi has three sons. His sons' names are Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. Their jobs were split up for the tabernacle. The tabernacle, for definition, was simply like a portable worship center, okay? It was a tent meeting. It was a place where the presence of God was visible to the people. It was a place where sacrifices were offered and worship was done, okay? So this tent had elaborate instructions. It was built, and, and they would move it from place to place as they wandered the desert, okay? And these sons of Levi had a job, and they split this job up between Gershon, Marari, and Kohath. Gershon's job, he took care of the tent and all the coverings. Marari took care of all the frames and the crossbars and the posts and the beams and the ropes that held this tent together. So you got, you got structure and you got fabric, okay? Kohath took care of the sanctuary and the furniture, the things that belonged in it. Um, if we split up the division between the two, uh, between two categories of thought, Gershon and Marari could use carts and animals and things to move their tents and their posts and beams and ropes around the desert. But, but Kohath had to carry everything by hand with really precise instructions. There are certain coverings and certain ways to carry it. and No man could touch it. And we, there's lots of illustrations that... that Tell us in the scripture how serious God is about how they dealt with that. But either way, just, just know that that was kind of the layout for the commandments for these brothers of, of Levi, Levi or, or sons of Levi. Now, Kohath had a grandson named uh, Korah. And Korah got together with some of the family, some of the cousins, some of the friends, some of the people of Israel, and they started to grumble. After years of this activity, you get to number 16, um, they're not happy anymore. It doesn't say precisely, like super precisely this aspect, but my assumption is that they were tired of the job. I mean, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and, and what's clear about the narrative is that Kohath says, who are you, Moses, to kind of make these divisions? Why is Aaron and his family the priest? You know, there are more godly men than just him. We could do it too. So they were jealous of Aaron and the priests, and they were probably tired of their occupation or what God had called them to do. Either way, Korah decided the thing to do was to, to kind of stage a coup, 
250 men got together with him, decided to get to come to Moses and say, this is going to stop now. Moses, your heavy hand, your control, this whole thing has got to stop. We need to add more people into this, into this storyline. So Moses uh, does what's the right thing to do. He calls all of those men before God, and he says, okay, men, you, you want to be priests? Go get your sense, censer, which is the, the kind of the, where the priest would burn incense. You, you go get your censer like a priest does. And, and you fill it with fire like a priest does. And, and you bring it and, and stand before the Lord with it like a priest does. You, you do that, and when we're all said and done, we'll let God decide who's his man to represent me. You, you do the activity of a priest because that's what you want. And then you show up here tomorrow and you demonstrate this, and we'll see what God has to say about it. So God says to Moses, Moses, listen, this is not going to go well for Korah. So here's what I want you to do. Tell the people. Now, by this time, the people of Israel are starting to watch with interest. Because if structure and anarchy can reign, then, then they're part of it too. And so they're watching. So Moses uh, hears from the Lord. Tell them to get away. Tell the people of God, tell Israel to move away from the rebellious men and their homes and all those who, who join with them. And then Moses lays down a challenge to those men. And to the people, here's what he says to the people of Israel. This is how you're going to know that the Lord sent me and told me these things. This is how you're going to know that you need to listen to the Lord, okay? If these men who show up with their censors trying to do the priest's job, if these men die of natural causes, the text says the way of all men, meaning they die of old age, they die because they got sick, they die because they got injured. If they just die like men die, then you know I'm a liar, but if they die, let's say, like the earth opens up and swallows them whole, <laughs> then you know I'm speaking the truth and, and I'm representing God, okay? And as soon, the text tells us, as soon as he's done talking, the earth opened up around those 250 men and their homes. It swallowed them all up. Uh, the text says to shoal, that's the depths of the earth, and then it closed up over them, okay? Now, that, just a side note. For the life of me, I can't understand why people rebel against God. But that's another story for another time. Um, but this is like picture Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. Open, closed, gone. All these people who thought they could do the job that God had called Aaron to. Um, now, you might think after a story like that in Numbers 16 that that's the end of Korah. But the scriptures tell us that some of his sons, some of his descendants survived and if you fast forward seven generations, here they are in Psalm 46. And David now has engaged with these people, these descendants, to form an elaborate organization for songs and worship for the people of God. They were worship leaders in the temple. They led the orchestras and they wrote songs. And that's, that's where we get most of the ones you're familiar with. Psalm 42 to Psalm 50 and, and beyond. The sons of Korah wrote them. And, and David calls him out to be probably the most significant worship writers the world has ever seen. In fact, in fact, you don't even have to go to church very often. And if I just quoted you some of their songs, you would go, I've heard of that one. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. Everyone's heard that, right? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord? Everyone's heard these. That's what the sons of Korah wrote. And they wrote 
chapter 46. Now, I'm going to read it in total because that's how it's meant. You get the song in one flash, not picking it apart word by word. And, and in it, it's not complicated. It has an observation about God, about the climate that he's living in, and how we're supposed to respond to it. So let's read it through, and I've got one just simple um, declaration about peace. Here's what the sons of Korah say, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most holy. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. God, I do ask for a special um, encouragement this morning for the church, that we would listen to the simplicity of this song, that in a time where the world seems like it is melting with fear, give us faith. I pray, God, when sin looks like it's winning, that we would trust and believe what the psalmist says. You are our refuge, you are our strength, and you are Lord of all. You're the Lord of hosts. Give us the faith to believe that. Give us the ears to hear this psalm and the discussion of peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, listen, um, you gotta wonder. In fact, I'm gonna suggest it's probably more than just a wonder that lurking in the minds of the sons of Korah when they sit down to pen Psalm 46 would be the legacy of their forefathers. Seven generations later, they've all heard about Uncle Korah. Hey, just so you know, he thought he was something special. He thought going his own way. He thought being his own refuge was really good, and, and the earth swallowed him whole. And then on and on it goes, generation after generation. They write this song, and verse 2, we will not fear even if the earth gives way. It's got to be lingering in their minds what God has done and what will do to, to guard his, his honor and, and I, you know, there's a side note. I, I told Neil, I, I, this would be a great sermon just to teach um, parents this idea of, uh, I wonder what our kids will teach their children from our failures. It's a very intimidating thought to know that the sons of Korah are writing about their pops, forgetfulness. And I have thousands of those things. And I wonder what my kids are going to write about. What are they going to tell? And that's something to encourage you by. Um, but that's a side note. The song is a powerful truth. Um, 
with that thought in mind that the, these sons of Korah were remembering their heritage and what they conclude is God is our strength. They conclude that he's the place of shelter, he's the place of refuge and the place of rest when the earth is coming apart at the seams. Now, if there is a great sentence to describe our culture from the election all the way to Houston and Dallas and Minneapolis and Louisiana and downtown Phoenix and all over our world, you could say, man, it feels like it's coming apart at the seams, doesn't it? It's out of control, it, it appears to me. And yet here's what the psalmist says, the Lord is our refuge. When, when things are not like we'd want them to be, when the world is coming down on us, when fear is doing most of the talking, Here's the simplicity of what the sons of Korah said to do. <laughs> Be still and know that he is God. Now, some people want a, an outline of how to fix things. Some people would prefer to have a tutorial of the identifying marks of what to do and not to do. And here's what the psalmist suggests. You lean into the sovereignty of God. You lean into the character of God and you be still and trust it. Now, what does it mean to be still? It, it has nothing to do with physical presence. It doesn't mean just to stand there and be still. It is not that. It is a disposition of the heart. To be still means that by faith, I'm just kind of take a breath, breathe. In my mind, I, I think clearly for any person in this room who believes in and knows the promises of God through Jesus, the good news that sin can be forgiven and you can be saved by faith alone, if you know that, if you have that promise, that disposition of the, of the heart is affected. Like you, don't, you don't panic. You might mourn, you might grieve, but you never end up in a place of uncertainty because you have ultimately God as your refuge and your strength. The, the, the Hebrew word uh, for um, be still has different meanings. Um, the, the actual meaning means to have slack in it. So if you had a rope and you had two ends and you just kind of drooped the middle, it's kind of what it was used to describe and it can be used negatively. In this sense, it can describe a person when someone's disheartened or discouraged. <sighs> slack in my emotions. I got slack in how I feel. I'm, I'm, I'm negative towards this situation. But here it doesn't mean that at all. Here it simply means drop the self-effort. Put slack in your effort. Okay? In other words, see striving. Striving to manage, striving to fix it on your own, stri striving to sort it all out and think it all out and, and to make it all work. It's, it, it's possibly what God is saying to some of us in here. Let, let's sit aside for a second the discussion about them. And by them, I mean all that chaos in our world, from the election to, to all the things in the Middle East and even to our cities. Let, let's just stop for a second and force yourself to think about in here, you, your trouble and your chaos from broken marriages or things that are coming apart at the seams or kids who are rebelling and they're hurting themselves and jobs that aren't that secure and money that's not that available and to things that aren't working out in your life. You've got the diagnosis of cancer and things aren't like they're supposed to be in your, your mind. So the stress level is just going through the roof. What do you do in troubled times like that? Maybe, maybe that's where some of us are this morning with, uh, with how we perceive our condition. Some of us are so tense and afraid and worried and anxious. Those are the words we use to describe how we feel. Well, if that's you, 
if it all describes how you experience your life sometimes, apart from our life in our world, then let the sons of Korah tell you to drop your self-management, the self-effort, and watch the deliverance of God. Here's what they say. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is God, a present in, in, in our trouble. He is with us. So let your hearts rest in that and be still. And, and maybe for you, you, that's all you needed to hear. You, you, you were just a little bit sad this morning. You just need to be encouraged to be still and know that he's God and you're ready to go off and tear up the world in a good way. But maybe you need more. And so I want to give you more with the time we have left this morning. How do you get here? How do you get to the place? And I would just put the big, a big word over this kind of description. How do you get to peace? Because peace really is a way to describe that. I believe that God is our refuge, and I believe that God is our strength, and peace is the conclusion. So how do I get to peace, and how do I, how do I help my heart stop its striving to sort out, understand, fix, and answer everything? How do I get to the place that the sons of Korah suggest that the people of God should be? Where, how do I get there? Well, let me just tell you a couple things true about peace. And if you like to take notes, this is when you should start writing. Here's where peace comes from. Peace grows in a heart that's humble enough to love God's leading. Peace grows in a heart that's humble enough to love God's leading. Here's what happens. When things happen around us, in us, and we don't understand them, there's a tendency in us to blame God and accuse him of bad motives or bad intentions. And therefore, we want to pick up the baton and fix things because obviously he dropped the ball and he's not doing it right. So here's what peace, here's where peace comes from. It grows in humility. Psalmist says this in Psalm 131, my heart is not proud, O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with, with great matters or things too lofty for me. You want code for lofty for me? Things I don't understand. And I suppose if there was an emotion I put on my last week, it was that. I don't understand. I don't understand how he dies. I don't understand how they die. I don't understand why they hate. I don't understand why they... I don't understand other than the fact that sin has darkened the hearts of men. So, the interpretation to that psalm is, is things too lofty for me. Let's keep it personal. How about your future, your life, how things are going to turn out for you? Things too lofty for you. Just, just if you keep it between your shoulder blades. You don't even know you. You don't know what tomorrow's going to be. You could leave here today and there's this trouble, this strife, this issue that pops right up. You didn't expect. But here's where peace comes from. If you truly, truly believe he's in control and you like it that way, that's the humility. I want him to be in control because I don't know anything. I can't fix anything. Here's what pride does. If you, if you kind of avoid this discussion, then here's what pride does, and it probably already has in your life if you haven't addressed it. It causes us to overvalue what we think or how we feel about everything. So if you jump into your own situations or other situations and you start applying your thoughts or your feelings to things and think that's the narrative for all people, then guess what happens? Trouble happens. Pride causes us to be restless and dissatisfied with what God provides. And I mean that in a good and a bad way. Here's what I mean. Um, sometimes we make accusations against God that he has not provided enough, right? God, I need this. Clearly, I need this. The bill collectors are at the door. 
I'm going to lose my home or I'm going to lose my job. God, I need this. So God, you haven't provided enough. Um, so that's why I'm restless. Or um, it's more than you want. God's made a promise to his people. Listen, I'm going to stretch you in the best ways. I'm going to grow you. And it's going to come through trouble and strife sometimes. And, and, and the Bible calls it trials. And you're supposed to consider it joy. And sometimes what God gives you, you don't want. You're like, I don't want any more of that. So you blame him for not giving you enough. And you blame him for, not give, for giving you too much. And the point of this thing is that pride causes us to be dissatisfied with whatever he gives me. That's the problem. Pride causes us to put refuge in ourselves, doesn't it? It's my money. Some of you have enough resources where you can finance a whole bunch of rebellion. Nobody can stop you. You got more than everybody else. And so money is your refuge. Some of you like to think. And so wisdom is your refuge, your plans, your opinions. Some of us cope with lots of different things, from medicine to drugs to alcohol to secrets. We cope. And so, pride causes us to be, um, be trusting in ourselves for our own refuge. Let me give you another truth. If, if, if that's the first one, that, that peace comes, if you're humble enough to love God's leading, then know this, that peace grows out of devotion to Jesus, Jesus alone. Uh, after we're done with Acts, we're going to be doing a study of the Sermon on the Mount. I think there's 13 weeks we're doing on the sermon. Matthew 6 is a part of that sermon. Verse 24, Jesus says this, and you're very familiar with it. He says that no one can serve two masters. Remember that? So here's the reality. Some of us, some of us are juggling two right now, if not more. And if you are, then I'm going to bet, not that I'm a betting man, but I'm going to bet that you got issues with peace. Because those other things, they're not capable of providing you peace. There is a whole tendency in the human heart to say, okay, I want, I want, that sounds good, having sin forgiven and a savior and a future forevermore, salvation. Oh, I love all that language. He remembers my sin no more, Psalm 103. I love that. I love that. But, but geez, not, not just Jesus. Jesus and something else. The gospel, good news, and something else. What is that something else? So ask yourself the question. If Jesus isn't your peace exclusively, then simply ask yourself, what else is? What else is a part of that narrative? And I'm going to tell you that's the problem. And if you want to find out what it is, then ask yourself what occupies your thoughts, what occupies your reading, what occupies your watching, what occupies your money, what occupies your, your texts and your time and everything else you put yourself into. And if the predominant quantity of things has nothing to do with Jesus being your peace, you're probably getting close to something. But it's worth a question. So peace grows in a heart humble enough to love God's leading. It grows out of devotion to Jesus. And this is what else Jesus says. It grows with an, with an eternal perspective. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this to, he tells us, encourages us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves won't break in and steal. Remember this? Okay. To, to lay up for ourselves things that have value that will not dissipate. Okay versus a world where everything rots and falls away and gets stolen, okay? Contrast earthly treasures with heavenly ones, and he offers that, that option. 
So it's just pretty simple. Some of us have our hopes and dreams in the way things work out for us, positively speaking. Like, like the way for my hopes and dreams to actually feel to their pinnacle is that everything goes my way. I had a, a fleeting thought on Thursday about the Powerball. Okay, I don't know if I'm the only one. I have never bought a Powerball ticket in my life. But at, at 500 million, you start thinking about it. Like, what if? And, and I put it away. I'm not going to buy one. But it is so, even in me, even in the seams of my life, it's like, what well, I that would be nice. And then you always do this, and I would give a lot to the church. And then it justifies that. <laughs> you store up your hopes and dreams in those places. But here's what, here's what Jesus was implying, okay? He's talking about disappointment. So if, listen, Christian, if you store up your treasures in heaven, and we're not talking about money. We're not talking about possessions. We're not talking about your houses. We're not talking about your career. It's not talking about power or position. If you store up your treasures like love for your brother, if you store up treasures like service for the king, and you store up treasures like confessions of your sins, and you just start living as a kingdom citizen, then guess what? Guess what? This is a promise. You will never, ever, ever be disappointed. If you store your stuff up, and if you have value in anything else, if it's stuff, if it's material, if it's you, well, you're dying and it's rotting. So you will be disappointed. You won't have any of it left. And, and by the way, and this should just ring true in us, when you're worried and anxious, it's never about the kingdom, is it? When you're worried and anxious, it's never about Jesus or his rule or what he's doing or what he's going to do. It's never about that. He's in charge. It's always about me, something small. So you don't have to worry about the kingdom of heaven, Paul says. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. For those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no separation ever from the Lord. He will finish what he started. He will keep all his promises. He will make all things new and right. There will be no more sickness, no more wars, no more hatred, no more racism, none of that. All that's gone when he's done with this, okay? So store it up there. That's, that's our encouragement. Let me, let me give you one last thought of peace. Peace is offered as a gift. Did you know that? A peace is something God gives his, his people. I read this to you last week, but it's worth reading again. It's powerful, so listen. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that's beyond comprehension, which to me means I couldn't even describe it to you when I get there. It's wonderful and it's awesome and it's deep-rooted. It's not anchored in mere circumstances. It's not connected to this stuff out there. It's connected to him and his purposes and his faithfulness and character to be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. This is just prior to him kind of going to the cross, okay? Before the high priestly prayer, in John 14, he says this. So church, listen to this from Jesus to you. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
neither let them be afraid. Jesus referring to the peace of his love and his sovereignty and power and his intentions with you. So, I don't know if the things that stress you out are the things you see and watch like they did for me on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever. And I'm being really honest. I sat there and stared and go, what, what do I say? What do you say to stuff like that? And there's a part of me, just a little part of me, that, that uh, fights really hard not to be super critical and negative. I told you last week that I'm, I'm inclined to think that everything's getting worse. I don't want to be that guy. Um, but it felt like that this weekend. And I, I studied this this week. And so guess what popped into my mind in the midst of watching these images of grieving parents for the loss of sons and the grieving officers for the loss of partners. This is what I prayed. God, if, if they're undone, beyond just the normal grieving of losing a loved one, there's a possibility they don't know Jesus. And to them, the only thing they can perceive that's worth crying or caring about is what they see in their world. But the psalmist, the sons of Korah, tell me that I can be still because I know there's a God and my God is described here as a refuge and a strength in a time of trouble. And from everything from watching politicians debate their whatever and, and violence and hatred and racism no matter what color it's in, here's what I pray. Jesus, would you just save us? We need the gospel. We need the good news. We need to see our need and run to the only solution God has ever provided in Christ. And in Christ, in Jesus, there is hope and there is peace and there is joy forevermore. Do you believe that, church? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. Uh, that in your sovereign plan, you had us in a passage that would remind us of your control and your love and a passage that was so practical as to tell us how to respond. God, I confess that um, peace isn't natural, but it is supernatural. And the peace that you provide comes through faith in Christ alone that allows us to perceive and understand and know who you are. That what the sons of Korah have said, we can embrace. That you're a God who's in charge. That there isn't one molecule out there that you aren't over. That you are a loving and a good God that we can take our rest in. God, I thank you for that reminder. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.